0: Now, this is a National Geographic article, everybody. I'm just reminding you of that, okay? And hold on, because this story is going to get more and more incredible as we go. And if you guys are wondering whether Lois Jessup's story is real, hang on to the end of this, because John has got, he's got the, the juice on this. We've got, potentially, the most bizarre story, an account of giants being seen in the underworld, in the inner earth, that we've ever seen before.
1: What the data was describing is that they were using a kind of echolocation that they have developed while living underground.
0: Have you ever heard of the curse of the Hypogeum? Malta's mysterious tunnels hide ancient history, but also extensive sightings of strange beings throughout the ages. Why did National Geographic report in 1940 about a tragedy of many missing schoolchildren if it were all a hoax? What did C. Lois Jessup really see in the mid-30s that lined up with Nat Geo's account just five to 10 years later? Skeletons and scary creature encounters are just the beginning. Join me, investigative researcher Rob Counts and remote viewer John Vivanco to hear remote viewing data on Lois' encounter, the missing children's experience, the creatures, and more. Tune in for a metaphysical episode that's out of this
1: world. If you're listening to this metaphysical podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or anywhere else, leave us a five-star rating and review to help us reach even more people. Remember, you gotta like, follow, and subscribe on YouTube, Rumble, Ganjing World, Twitter, and Facebook if you want to keep up to date on what's happening next.
0: John, how you doing?
1: Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You said great as if there's going to be a, a crazy episode
1: ahead. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff that we've seen with remote viewing around this Malta stuff already, but I think it gets a little bit weirder. It. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. It's just like cul-de-sacs of weird. It's another it's, cul-de-sac of
0: weird. I would go ahead and call this the weirdest. This is if you have not heard this story before or you're not even sure whether it was real or not, whether it was fake, this is going to be like worldview changing metaphysical material. Uh, Probably one of the reasons we're calling this the curse of the Hypogeum, mysterious tunnels and missing children in Malta. And actually I figured we probably should start this episode by a very, very interesting quote Uh, that we found. In 1649, Maltese historian Giovanni Francisco Abella shared one of the earliest known observations of the Hagar Chim, I think it's called, Hagar Kim. This is one of the sites in Malta. He said, quote, that it was, quote, indubitable evidence of the fact that the first inhabitants of Malta were of the race of giants, unquote. What I find so I would agree. <laughs> yeah, what I would find so in, I find so interesting and so funny about this is like oftentimes we look back on ancient man and we think they're unintelligent. But if you think about it, it's like what's so funny is even if that's true, even the simplest person could look at this and and be able to tell you that that's what it was. I mean, it's just so blatantly obvious and it's right in front of our eyes and people are not accepting of what they're seeing. That's what's right. crazy. Right. I right. mean, think about it, John. If, if an angel came down from the heavens right now or a god or a god came down from the heavens and everyone saw it and then it got posted onto social media, there was a video taken of it, it was put on social media, no one would believe it. Right. Everyone would be like, this is not true. This is a fake video. This is blah, blah, blah. And and then if you don't, if you just say what was what was seen, people would be like, show me the proof, bro. That's cap, exactly. bro.
1: <laughs> it's like, I know.
0: Yo, I, know. I mean, it's really that's why it's so important for us to have these discussions is it's really up to you at home to discern because no one is going to tell you on social media what's true and what's not. Everyone's going to have an opinion and and it's like, Whoever is the loudest wins over there. So you know we've got to get better
1: at discerning this stuff. I, you know, I I spent a life spending a lifetime in in remote viewing, and coming from the initial standpoint of not knowing. I mean, I've always been into trying to understand uh, the more conspiracy side my whole life. I have, you know, um, but. Remote viewing truly like opened my eyes up to what's truly going on here. And I still don't know what's truly going on here. But I do know that we have this consensus reality, consensus perception that is dictated and driven by what you're neighbor says by what that authority says and by what people start taking on as being real and not real and that belief that attitude doesn't make something real right and so you are being told how to think i'm not telling anybody how to think i'm saying explore for yourself and a lot of stuff we find actually is not truly real right but when we go into a lot of these things, we pick out the things that are real, in a sense, so that there is something to, to really you know, dig your teeth into. Right? Yeah, to chew on. And, and, and what you find ultimately is that, that we are so closed off with these blinders based off of consensus reality, and we, we find it very scary to venture outside of it. But the moment you start stepping outside of it, the whole construct falls like dominoes. All of it, you know. So,
0: well, yeah. I mean, who, who, whoever controls the information controls the narrative, controls what people do, how they think, everything. I mean, we, we as a, as a, as a human race, allow ourselves to be controlled in a, and I think in a scary way. I mean, um, it's history. You can easily track history back, and and honestly. One of the things that I find like that I would like I would love to sit down with some of the archaeologists. Or academics that I find on YouTube that are debunking people like Graham Hancock and sit down with them and be like, you know, I'm not doubting your profession or what you think, you know. But what I what I would like to tell you is you may have a limited idea of history because you can even look into things like communism and the history that that it rolled out in and how how the world was then controlled after Marx, Engels, Darwin, what really happened there, you would have much a much better idea of things that are happening now and how they how they transpired. And if you don't have that foundation, you're living in a in a in a diluted state because you don't know what these corporations, these different people around you are doing and 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 what, how they've constructed a narrative. Right. They don't even believe there is a narrative. They believe that's conspiracy talk. Like that is conspiracy talk and it's not at all. This is a, now, if you guys are interested in this, this is a a very, probably the most detailed series that we have on Rise TV that goes through the history of communism and it goes back to a scary early time. And it, and it I will tell you right now, this series will knock your socks off. It will explain so much about what's going on now that you didn't know. Whether you like communism or not, it's worth just to figure out and to understand what the history was.
1: And also, I think these the, the, the people who run countries um, and the people beyond, behind the people who run countries, think in terms of 100 years from now, 50 years from now, how do we achieve this result? that result, while generations only think within their generation of, you know, the average person, right? These people think way far ahead in how to achieve results. And so you have to be very, very aware of the types of media, social engineering that gets placed on a population because they're not going after the older generations. They're going after the younger ones so that a hundred years from now, the landscape is completely different than what it is completely different totally and
0: and this this episode is going to deliver because this 1940 national geographic story wanderers a wheel in malta british stronghold has been a stepping stone of conquest since phoenicians cruised the mediterranean and saint paul was shipwrecked there this article has An incredible amount of information that we're going to go through and it's going to lead us into a larger story having to do with things that were seen in the Hypogeum by explorers. Um, and they're all tied together and then John's eventual remote viewing data that will blow the top off of this entire thing. John (laughs) John and I've been working on this episode for a long time, like for weeks and weeks right now to try to help you guys understand how insane this is that the hypogeum is why don't we just get into this article a little bit here so we've got uh, a prehistoric periscope uh, as a part of this article it says the hypogeum near hal safliani is a remarkable megalithic temple where prehistoric man worshipped his deities and buried his dead long shafts descended 30 feet below the earth's surface where carved from solid sandstone lie dozens of odd rooms including an altar a long hallway and a treasure vault one of the chambers opens to the outside through a long shaft into which snakes and wild animals fell to their death it is littered with bones and tusks unfamiliar to our age near this gruesome butcher shop lies a megalithic reservoir a deep tapering rain catcher think about that for a second
1: It's a funnel. Basically, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call it a rain catcher. I call it a trap, (laughs) a trap. True, but a reservoir for water is
0: interesting in and of itself. It means beings are living down there for who knows how long in the dark.
1: Yeah, you know, the the apparently um, the Maltese government will are is using uh, a lot of the underground for reservoirs at this point in time. So, yeah.
0: And and actually, more of what John just said is going to be um, outlined in this article. In another chamber is a hollow in the wall into which the high priest must have spoken. When Ham and I, that's the person this gentleman was with, when Ham and I spoke into it, I could hear his words in any room in the temple. The whole structure seemed to vibrate with sounds. Most uncanny of all was the fact that whereas low tones could be heard everywhere distinctly, high pitched notes did not carry farther than the chamber itself. When ham shrieked a falsetto version of Ol Sola Mio into the hollow, not a sound of it reached my ears. Now, this is a national geographic article, everybody. I'm just reminding you of that. Okay. And hold on because this story is going to get more and more incredible as we go more than once we soundly cursed the remiss methods of megalithic people. Their smoothly hewn walls and doorways were not over four and a half feet high, forcing us to pleat our six-foot statures to a more practical height." Goes back to the troglodytes right there. Pleat means duck, fold. They were ducking. All right, Tragedy in Malta's Tunneled Maze. Our friends told us that the island was honeycombed with a network of underground passages, many of them catacombs. Years ago, one could walk underground from one end of Malta to the other, but all entrances were closed by the government because of a tragedy. On a sightseeing trip, comparable to a nature study tour in our own schools, a number of elementary school children and their teachers descended into the tunneled maze and did not return. For weeks, mothers declared that they had heard wailing and screaming from underground, but numerous excavations and searching parties brought no trace of lost souls. After three weeks, they were finally given up for dead. Sections of this underground network have been used to protect military and naval supplies. Indeed, many of the fortifications themselves are merely caps atop a maze of tunnels. Among the first activities of Italy after Mussolini's declaration of war on June 10th, was the bombing of the island. The establishment in 1937 of a new air base, in addition to the tremendously strategic naval position she occupies, makes Malta guardian of the central Mediterranean, a possession to be prized, perhaps again to be fought for, which in just a couple of years, it becomes the most bombed place in all of World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we we just brought up the children that basically were lost in the tunnels.
1: Disappeared, never heard from again. I know there are people who tried to research the story, couldn't find much though. Okay, so what,
0: now let's let's get into this a little bit because this is where some of the contention around this lies is the evidence of missing children. We're, we're seeing this in a National Geographic article. It's the only place other than um, another account by a woman named Lois Jessup that we see this. Okay, so what could have happened? why would we have no evidence of the story of lost children when we're talking about, you know, let's say 30 children, something like that, just getting lost in tunnels. Why would there be no evidence of this? Well, there was verbal evidence. There was discussion that this, this story was in the newspapers on Malta at the time. Okay. They had newspapers at the time. It was published in newspapers. People on the Island were aware of it and verbally it was being passed around. Now, We're talking about 1940 here, just a few years later, Malta becomes the most bombed place in the entire World War II. We're talking about every family on the island of Malta trying to survive. The memory of such an event would be pushed into the far distant past. If this was the case, because we're talking about everybody on Malta's lives being in danger for, for a long period of time. And, yeah, that's a good point. Right. Okay, so, so here it is, the Malta mystery. This is a 1942 article. Malta is the most bombed objective of the war. It has taken more raids even than Chongqing, which is in a state of almost continuous destruction and rebuilding. Chongqing is in China. But the importance of Malta, which is traditional, has unexpectedly increased in the last month. Now, we're talking about this becoming the central point of war for a period of time where I guess all of Hitler's forces was bent on taking Malta. And we covered this in a previous episode, so you can go back and look at that if you'd like. Okay, so the children. Now, it was corroborated in a story by a a woman named Lois Jessup. Now, her claim was published by the New York Saucer Information Bureau. This is, this is where it gets weird because Lois Jessup is a very interesting person. Very, very interesting person. Way more interesting than we initially thought even hearing her story at the beginning. Now this story came out publicly around 1960. Mid-nin- so this is in the mid 1930s. Constance, Lois Jessup and friends visited Malta. One afternoon, six of us decided to hire a car and visit some of the many historical tourist attractions on the island. Obviously, this is Lois's account here. One of our party suggested that, the, that since the weather was very hot, our best bet was to visit some of the caves and underground temples. At least there, we could keep cool for a few hours. Some few miles out of Valletta, the capital of Malta, is the little town of Paula. It has only one main street, Hal Afliani, And on this is the entrance to an underground temple known as the Hypogeum of Hal Safliani. We stopped here and sought out a guide for a tour of the cave of or Catacombs of the Hypogeum. There was a fairly large cave entrance with ancient mural decorations of whorls and wavy lines, diamond patches here and there, also oval patterns seemingly painted with red ochre. The entrance itself smelt damp and moldy, but inside the cave, there was not a trace of mustiness. Joe, the guide, told us there were three floors of underground rooms and gave each of us a lighted candle. One by one, we bent down low to walk through a narrow passage which led to a step or two, and again, we were able to stand up in a fair-sized room which had been built out of the Malta sandstone eons ago in the Stone Age. Joe told of a powerful oracle or wishing well deep down and how it had worked wonders in the old days for the initiated who knew the correct sound to use. I think the oracle still works today unless it was damaged. Malta was heavily bombarded during World War II. This is interesting. This guy, Joe, back then knew about a well in the oracle and potential spelling in there if you knew how to use it. Now, the oracle was supposed to work only if a male voice called to it, but as the guide was saying this, I slipped down a small step and gave a yell that was picked up by something and magnified throughout the whole cave. We followed the guide through some more narrow passages, which led down, down, and then straightened our backs again when we came into another room, and this large opening was a circular stone table or altar in the center of the room. Cut out of the rock walls around were layers of stone beds or resting places of some kind with hollows scooped out for head, body, and narrowing to the feet. I guess these were places for adults about four feet tall with Mm -hmm. smaller scooped out beds. It looked like mother, father, and child either slept or were buried there, although we saw no bodies there. Down, down, down again, stooping and crawling through a narrow passage into another large room with slits or narrow openings in the stone wall. They buried their dead in here, said the guide. I peered through a slit and saw skeletons, another. Through another slit, I peered into a cave where the guide said they kept their prisoners. A three-foot stone thick stone door about four feet high and four feet wide guarded the entrance. That would be, that sounds very heavy. Three foot thick stone door about four feet high and four feet wide. Like we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of pounds, like maybe 700 pounds. Right. Right.
1: I, yeah, I mean, these, these things, (laughs) even on the surface were made as prisons. Yeah, you know, it's really right. interesting, you know, and right. they, they, they realize that deep in the hypogeum, but they don't apply that to what's on the surface.
0: When she brings it up next, she said, quote, what kind of people and how strong were these pygmies to be able to carve out these rooms to a definite pattern and to move doors this thick and heavy? I thought this is the end of the tour. Joe, the guide said, we must now turn and retrace our steps. What's down there. I asked him. For on turning, I noticed another opening off one of the walls. Go there at your own risk, he replied, and you won't go far. I was all for more exploring and talking it over with my friends. Three of them decided to go with me and two waited with the guide. I was wearing a long sash around my dress and since I decided to lead the group, I asked the next one behind me to hold on to it. Holding our half-burnt candles, The four of us ducked into this passage, which was narrower and lower than the others groping and laughing our way along. I came out first onto a ledge pathway about two feet wide with a sheer drop about 50 feet or more on my right, a wall on my left. And you guys, this is where it gets completely mental, like mental. I took a step forward close to the rock wall side. The person behind me still holding onto my sash had not yet emerged from the passage. Thinking it was quite a drop and perhaps I should go no further, without the guide, I held up my candle. There, across the cave from an opening deep below me, emerged 20 persons of giant stature. In single file, they walked along a narrow ledge. Their height I judged to be about 20 or 25 feet since their heads came about halfway up the opposite wall. They walked very slowly, taking long strides. Then they all stopped, turned, and raised their heads in my direction. All simultaneously raised their arms and with their hands beckoned me. The movement was something like snatching or feeling for something as the palms of their hands were face down. Terror rooted me to the spot. Go on, we're all getting stuck in the passage, my friend jerked at my sash. What's the matter? Well, there's nothing much to see, I stammered, taking another step forward. My candle was in my right hand. I put my left hand on the wall to steady me and stopped again. My hand wasn't on cold rock, but on something soft and wet. As it moved, a strong gust of wind came from nowhere and blew out my candle. Now I was really scared in the darkness. Go back, I yelled to the others. Go back and guide me back by my sash. My candle has gone out and I cannot see. In utter panic, I backed into the narrow little passageway and forced the others back too, until we backed into the large room where Joe and my friends were waiting. What a relief that was. Well, did you see anything? Asked one of them. No, I quickly replied. There was a draft in there that blew my candle out. Let's go, said Joe, the guide. I looked up at him. Our eyes met. I knew that at one time he had seen what I had seen. There was an expression of caution in his eyes, adding to my reluctance to tell anyone. I decided not to. Out in the open again, and in the hot Malta sunshine, we thanked the guide. And as we tipped him, he looked at me. If you really are interested in exploring further, it would be wise to join a group. There's a school teacher who is going to take a party exploring soon, he said. There's the school kids, man. Yep. What? I left my address with him and asked him to have the school teacher get in touch with me, but I never heard any more about it until one of my friends called me to read an item from the Valletta paper. This is a newspaper. It was in the newspaper. Right.
1: So this is the the story of the school children then, right? That's right. This is the account that we have. I say, Lois, remember that tunnel
0: you wanted to explore? It says here in the paper that a schoolmaster and 30 students went exploring and apparently got as far as we did. They were roped together and the end of the rope was tied to the opening of the cave. As the last student turned the corner where your candle blew out, the rope was clean cut and none of the party was found because the walls caved in. The shock of this information didn't change my determination not to say anything about my experience in the Hypogeum, but several months later, my sister visited Malta and insisted on making a tour of the underground temple on Hal Saflieni. Reluctantly, I went along retracing the same route, but there was a different guide this time. When we went down to the lowest level, to the room where I had taken off to explore, the tunnel entrance was boarded up. Wasn't it here that the schoolmaster and the 30 students got trapped, I asked the guide? Perhaps, he replied with a non-committal shrug of the shoulders and refused to say anything more. You cannot get a thing out of the Maltese when they don't want to talk. You are new here, aren't you? I asked him. Where's Joe, the guide who was here a couple of months ago? I don't know any Joe, he shook his head. I alone have been showing people around this catacomb for years. Who was this guide? And why did Joe disappear after we left Hal Safliani that first time? And why is it impossible to get any facts on the disappearing school children? In the summer of 1960, Louise Becker, NYSIB's treasurer, visited Malta during her European trip. She researched old newspaper files and the museum, trying to get some facts to substantiate my story. But in vain, the Maltese are tight lipped about the secrets of their island. What do you think about that?
1: John? That's just that's yeah, it's just wow. That's an interesting, interesting article. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. you have the, the you have the children and you have Jessup, Louise Jessup, who went just before the children, the children come out of the uh, National Geographic article and Louise Jessup goes after the children actually dis or bef- just before the children disappear. Um, and she was supposed to go on that little trip,
0: but she was never society. contacted, right? right? Okay, so much of this story revolves around Lois Jessup um, as a person. So bear with us while we go through all of this, because it is quite compelling. Yeah, who was she? Right. Yeah. Especially when you start going through that, like who she was, you know, who she rubbed elbows with in society, all of this stuff. Right. So what's strange is we were just talking about this N.Y. uh, S.I.B which is the New York Saucer Information Bureau. Now, I what I'm thinking is this. After Lois had seen what she saw, I think she was much more open to the anomalies on our world, recognizing them as being more true than than perhaps false. And so her joining, you know, a UFO information bureau is not all that shocking especially then trying to publish this article through there because who's gonna who's gonna take that story the the new york times the new york post is gonna write some sensational article and call her crazy probably right
1: right right
0: so okay so she she attended a talk with the uh in new york with her with her saucer group uh lois jessup was reminded of the peculiar appearance of the 20-foot giants she saw in the house Saflieni. By a couple of 35 millimeter slide illustrations in someone's number four saucer lecture concerned with mediumship, the slides were copies of a mystic's drawing of the human aura. Of the huge cavern dwellers she she saw, she said, quote, their covering seemed to be like long white hair, combed downward and shaggy looking. Their heads were oval and elongated at the chin and top and the hair on their heads fell about their shoulders like a draped monk's cowl. So this is the description that she gave in detail to the saucer group of these giant beings that she saw. Okay, now we saw now that's a that's a monk's cowl if you were unaware, like basically this hood, right? Like a draped monk's cowl, but imagine hair instead of the uh, instead of the hood. Okay. Now weird weird stuff about Lois We found an apparent obituary of Lois Jessup's, okay? Listen to this, Constance Lois Jessup, former registrar of the Henry George School in New York and later assistant of the Henry George Institute died April 14th, 1996 in a nursing home near Albany, New York. She was 91. Lois Jessup was born in England, a dancer and actress. She also lived in other parts of Europe and in Africa where she was married briefly. Listen to this. Working with Alfred Hitchcock, she decided to become a director, but World War II changed those plans. She served in civil defense in England. After the war, she and her sister emigrated to Canada and then to the United States. She joined the staff of the Henry George School in the 1950s and became assistant to Bob Clancy in 1971. Miss Jessup regaled friends with stories of her past, including her roles as dancer and actress, dancing with Frank Sinatra in a nightclub and other brushes with the famous and infamous. Her life had another dimension, the Dalai Lama and other Tibetan monks, as well as Rosicrucians were also her friends. After becoming an American citizen around 1982, Miss Jessup made 2 dollar contribution to the Republican Party which was so magnified by computer error that she became a member of the party's inner circle. So somehow there was some computer error and like the 2 dollars turned into like 2 million out of a computer error and so she was she was upgraded to like their inner circle of the Republican Party.
1: They're using computers then. I would Would not expect a bureaucracy to do that.
0: She said it was uh, some magnified by some computer error. Now, maybe it was the, just to be fair, maybe it was the donation made in 1982, but then later when it got input into computers later on, she got boosted. Who knows, right? Strange. Okay. Says uh, she attended parties and dinners with President Reagan his cabinet, and members of Congress, which made for exciting stories. She will be remembered for her, her exuberant independence, even in her 80s, her always formal appearance, usually hatted and gloved, and her friendly, kind heart. She was also reportedly an employee of the British Embassy.
1: Sounds like intelligence. Yeah. Sounds like, this is crazy. Yeah. It does
0: a little bit, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah that's really interesting. you know what's interesting too is that um the borderland sciences the the original group of that also i think they called something they were dealing with inner earth stuff a lot too. a lot of inner earth stories inner earth investigations. really? and and that particular group i believe was connected to the person who released admiral bird's diaries. Oh, right. Which, mm. which is not real. I mean, right. if, if what we've seen, it's not real. Um, So that's kind of curious, actually curious. I, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that this group is, is all fake, but you know, when, when you're dealing with these types of groups, some stuff that comes out, I mean, people just put out whatever they put out. Some of it's fake, some of it's real, but she's interesting. I mean, she's almost like if she worked with the British, in uh, Embassy. I mean, that would probably mean she's—I don't know—a little bit on the intelligence side too.
0: Well, I mean, maybe, right. but like, I mean, there's so many people that work in the government, true, yeah. around the world that are just like total, utter normies. I mean, the right. the vast majority, like, way upper in the ninetieth percentile, are just total, right. normal, total people normal people trying to get a paycheck. Project. Yeah. Right. And right. You guys, so Borderland
1: doesn't have a connection to Lois. It just published her story on the site, right? So, right, yeah.
0: which is what they were known for—is like publishing more of this information. And if you guys are wondering whether Lois's Lois Jessup's story is real, hang on to the end of this because John has got—he's got the the juice on this, and and it will blow your mind. <clears throat> okay. More weird stuff about Lois. Uh, Constance Lois was part of the New York. Saucer Information Bureau, a New York-based UFO, ufology organization. The Bureau originally published a newsletter beginning in 1958 under one director and relaunched in 1959 as a quarterly publication under the new editorial direction of Constance Lois Jessup and a man named John Hay. Ivan T. Saunderson, a biologist and zoologist who wrote extensively on cryptids, flying saucers, and other phenomena, reported the New York Saucer Bureau to the FBI in 1958. Hmm. Sanderson claimed that members of the New York Saucer Bureau were engaged in subversive activity and that the public meetings of the group involved requests for people to write their congressmen to stop nuclear war, to tear down American national defense and to stop the secrecy and the government, unquote. This might partly explain the subsequent reorganization of the group's leadership and editorial board. We've got potentially the most bizarre story and account of giants being seen. In the underworld, in the inner earth that we've ever seen before. So was Lois Jessup? Was she intelligence and this was a psychological operation? Or did she really see what she said she saw and these children went missing by the same group that she
1: saw? Yeah, those are the questions, really. You know, when we look at, well, let's just start with Lois Jessup. So when we look at what she claims, um, what we do is, is we look at what she was doing, feeling and perceiving at the moment she claims that this happened. Right, because because when we when we look at that specific thing, um, blind of course, we we get straight into what they were doing at that time frame, and if there are any lies, it's going to place them somewhere else, or it's going to place them in the location, and and they're making the rest of it up. Right. Um. So, so what we have with Lois Jessup on that particular matter that particular incident was we have her in a cave system so she's deep underground is it's dark it's dank there's minimal lighting very very low lighting and she's with other people we have her um like like holding on like what she claimed to to holding on to her sash we have her holding on to her sash we have her her heart beating very fast. This subject in the data is very nervous, right? But also really excited because who knows what's down there? And she basically had, you know, in the story she had, she had broken off from the guide. The guide was like, you know, if you want to go that way, go that way. It's, it, it's, it's your, it's your dime. It's your death. It's your funeral. <laughs> yeah. So, so she was very, 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 um, high emotionally pitched in the data. Uh, but wanted to see, wanted to see what else was down there. So especially what the, what the guide had said really stoked her interest. She's like, well, you're telling me this is like, don't, per- don't press that red button over there kind of situation. She was one of those, it seems like, who would want to press the red button if you told her not to. So she's down there. So the data starts to describe exactly what she said. So we have these these large creatures showing up in the data. This is coming this is her perception. She's actually seeing this. So we have these large creatures in the data. We do have them having hair like they are are hairy, hairy, but they're very, very large. Now, I don't know if they're 20, 25 feet or shorter. I have no idea because the remote viewing data basically just goes into very large subjects. And these subjects, these subjects are, blind okay or they have very very minimal like eyesight capacity probably because they they live down there i was gonna say like this happens
0: to moles right it's like blind moles like you live underground long enough and your eyesight just goes right right
1: right and so so what what the data was describing is that they were using a kind of echolocation that they have developed while living underground Right. So so like these beings are somehow relation relationally like distant, connected to the original one long headed skull beings that were down there. So there, there had been some type of evolution with these things, and obviously, like they have been under there for a very long time. So so what Jessup was saying across the board was true. Like this is what she saw, like her, her trip down there was very short, right? It was very quick because she saw them, she got freaked out and she left, right? It was very quick. And our data completely verifies that she did see what she claimed to have seen. And then going further with the data, these beings are like you would, they would be like distant relatives of an evolutionary process underground from these old nephilim that came from you know somewhere else so i don't know what the the slimy thing was that she touched or felt in that moment yeah i don't know i don't know what that was because when you get to (laughs) these cave systems you're gonna have probably other things as well like like with the with regard to the hypogeum and all that stuff that's under there others had come in to cut their own space within it as well i mean heck you know it could be the troglodyte of ancient greece that's running past her right because i think that in part these beings are down there as well now there is a water table there though right when you go deep enough you're going to hit the water table so the the cave system is going to have to go um horizontally because it's going to hit the water, it's inevitable. Um, so with the children, now when we get to the children, which is which is really a messed up story. Like, can you imagine? You know, you go, your child disappears, and you're you're going to be looking for your child. You're going to be going to that area underground to search for him if you were a parent of that child. And for those people to hear screaming, I mean, that's just insane. It's yeah. insane.
0: Yeah, so right. so just to requote the article, it said, for for weeks mothers declared that they had heard wailing and screaming from underground, but numerous excavations and searching parties
1: brought no trace
0: of the lost souls after three weeks they were finally given up for dead.
1: Right. Just a really intense story. And so we have, you know, we looked at the reality of the story to try to understand. Um, what happened, if anything happened at all. And oftentimes in this type of remote viewing data, it it, it either directly goes into fantasy, um, story, mythology, you know, you get terminology like that. Or if it's true, you have multiple, you know, you need more remote viewers for this kind of thing because you're, you're asking for something that is almost more like a binary type question, a yes or no type situation, um, which doesn't type of questioning doesn't work so well in remote viewing because the remote viewers describe. But when remote viewers across the board start describing a situation that is akin to people claiming what happened, then you have something that is more real than the other side. Otherwise, they'd be explained like, Oh, it's like Santa Claus or mythology or something like that, they would be going into that eventually in their data. So with this, we do have a group of children um, that are a a large group, like they're, they're moving through tunnel system. We, we get ropes, we literally get ropes. We get, we get these, this group moving through a tunnel system. What happens? Like we, we have clear, clear, um, uh, representations, like straight up representations of their rope being cut. Somebody cut cut Either somebody cut the rope or something collapsed on it purposefully, but there was something else behind this, right? So, so we have the rope being cut and them getting confused and utterly lost. So Mm -hmm. they basically kept going. They didn't know where they were going. They go down to where the water table is. And when, when, when they hit the water table, um, the tunnels go off in all sorts of different directions. Right. So they just go and go. And then <laughs> what we have, what shows up in the data are the large, hairy. echolocation type blind giant things. <laughs> what are they? So so this this shows up in the data and this is like so these 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 people, the kids are specifically trying to move away from what they're hearing, what they're hearing in the cave. Right and they're trying to move away from this. And on the other side of that, we have these things that are like, trying to find them based on echolocation. So, so them screaming is even more horrifying, when you realize the fact that these things down there that Lois Jessup saw that we saw in remote viewing data are following them based on their screams, right? Right. So so eventually, they're found and that does not end well it's done it's over they were consumed by these things yeah they're basically consumed because the the thing is is that that whole thing the upper part um the the so-called temples on the surface were geared to hold these right 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 so hold people so so yes so yeah that's that's what it appears to be it's like when you get to the idea of uh rock cut into a funnel where they're where they're um basically harvesting water it's not so much i mean you would say that today but it's it's not so much what it was for originally because because as humans go through there and they travel this is why the hypogeum is closed off all around and people can only go to the oracle room for the most part because if you can't see that funnel and you fall into it that is one of the traps right so you've got these things that are underground. Now, I don't know if they're underground right now. I have no idea, at least back then they were. I mean, I assume that they're still there somewhere, but you have to remember it like doesn't go to an inner earth kind of situation, at least right there. It, it, it's because there's a, a water table, you know, and we're seeing that in the data, this, this water table, you get to a certain level. So yeah. Can let me ask you a question. Why yeah. do you
0: think if these things are down there, why do you think they don't come up to the surface? they're blind well okay i understand that they're blind but is it something else like i mean why so as i believe you like i believe you like i i understand the remote viewing data i believe louise louise jessup or lois jessup's uh, account rather um but it's just these things are deep under there they they must have been under there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why aren't these things coming up to the surface is like just the question. Like, why do these beings live underground and don't come up? Is it is there something more to that? You know? Well,
1: I, I mean, I, th- I think that that for the most part, they've just basically established themselves as living within the Earth in general. And I, I, I believe that those tunnels that are above the water table can they probably go pretty far right and i and i when we had originally remote viewed like the whole nephilim thing the contingent of beings who broke off from other contingents some stayed on the land and they they basically developed into the giants of old right where native peoples would would fight them and whatnot the ones that went underground decided to just live underground that's what they wanted to do they wanted to stay away from human population for the most part stay away stay hidden and so that's what you have and so there has to be something extremely extensive underground and enough food source and whatnot in order to survive and it could be that that's some very tiny small contingent that's left of these beings it very well could be hardly any of them are left and, you know, they wouldn't come up in a highly populated area. I highly doubt it,
0: you know. Well, they, and they would be killed right away if they did. Oh, yeah. I mean, probably know that. But the other thing, too, is, you know, some of the reports that we saw that we were discussing in previous episodes with this, was that this tunnel system goes all the way to the Vatican. The tunnel system under the Hal Safliani Hypogeum goes all the way up to the Vatican. If that's true, the tunnel system that these beings are in are vast. And who else? Who knows what else is down there with them? Right. We just don't know or how deep it goes, how extensive it is. Right.
1: Right. I mean, you know, I I imagine that the tunnel system would have been way more extensive uh, before that Ice Age uh, flooding, you know, when the Ice Age basically ended, Um, it would have been way more extensive because that stuff was way above the water table. You know, I don't know what it looks like today. I mean, heck, I mean, there could be colonies just cut off from each other after that time. You know, you might find more in, in Italy than you do. on Or, that
0: or even <laughs> colonies that still war with one another. I mean, right. there's so many places, even in the United States, where people hear noises underground from from the surface, right? like booms and and different strange buzzing. And who knows? You know?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know. But from 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 our standpoint, you know, I would say that this these both of these stories are are appear to be true. You know, it looks like they are because we would get totally different data uh, if they were if they were fake stories. So. Very, very interesting, very curious. (laughs) If you're still
0: with us and you're listening to this right now, can you believe that this is true? I mean, this is like. This is crazy, crazy stuff. Like this has got to be one of the most, I mean, just interesting accounts that we've found that's left that actually made it through
1: <laughs> like the goalie, you know? Yeah, exactly. I know. I know. Very strange and, and not talked about. Just not not Not
0: up. a whole heck of a lot. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got like, think about it. We covered this in a previous episode, but up until about 2000, what was it, 14 or something? No one was really even visiting Malta. Like we're talking about some of the most megalithic sites in the world being in Malta, Sicily, Sardinia. Right. And like Sicily, Sardinia, sometimes people go there, but Malta, no one really hears about it. I mean, most of the time when you're you're hearing about Malta, you're going to be talking about the Knights of St. John artwork that's there. Some of the buildings that were made, but the megalithic sites are really where it's at. I mean, right. Some of the most interesting megalithic sites in the entire world. Well, there you have it. Uh, the Hal of Hypogeum. Uh, I recommend that you go there, but I also recommend that you don't. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's the um, thing. It's like, you know, you can you can go there, but it's like you just get to go to the Oracle room because it's tight tight tight, tightly controlled. I mean, in fact, back in the eighteen forty-four, there was a rumor that the British had buried some of the tunnels. And then you have the workmen who found it later on, and um they reburied it, you know. So it's like I think that there has been a lot of control, a lot of knowledge and understanding by those people in power who understand what's down there and trying to keep it away. I mean, that's also why uh, the archaeologists who have done very good research on this, especially uh, around the teeth, get shut down because you, you can't raise the questions of what else is down there. You just can't if you want to keep it hidden. Well, and that that just that's just it right there. I mean
0: when you start looking into the megalithic sites you might come to the conclusions we have uh, in this series about what it was for who was really there how long it goes back it would completely change the history books leading up to today not to mention the fact that there's actual fabled beings living within the earth right underneath malta that most people living there the 400 450,000 people are unaware of themselves or they've heard whispers about it in the local pub. And it stays there because most of these local areas, they know their culture. They talk right. about it with one another, but it doesn't really get out. I mean, that's just so how it be is. Be
1: careful with that secret door in your pantry to the Malta underworld. You know, if you be guys careful. haven't.
0: Seen, John is referring Boarding to it a previous episode. There was a house in Malta whose pantry went into the tunnels beneath the island. Um, How many more are out there? We don't know, but uh, maybe someday, John and I can go there, uh, explore for ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: In the comment, please leave a comment if you have a secret door in your pantry and we'll be heading over to your house. We'll visit,
0: we'll go explore, we'll let you know what we find. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. John, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, this really blew the top off of what's really happening in Malta. Hope you guys appreciated that. We'd love to know what you guys think. So please leave comments below. The engagement helps the channel. You guys watching this episode on uh, YouTube or Pod Podbean, wherever you are, um, Spotify really helps the channel. Uh, we appreciate you guys very much. We'd love to know what you think. Uh, John, thanks so much for being here. And for all of you at home, we hope you thought this episode was as insane and out of this world as we did.